0: Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to another of our AUA Office of Education uh, educational podcast series. Um, My name is Jay Rahman. I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, Today's show title is specifically in the realm of prostate biopsy and talking about the transperineal versus the transrectal debate. And it's really my pleasure today to have as a guest, Dr. Butter Mian. Uh, Dr. Mian is a urologic oncologist at Albany Medical Center. um, And he received his uh, residency training at the Virginia Commonwealth University, followed by a fellowship at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and has been on staff um, at Albany Medical Center for a number of years now, uh, really providing the full spectrum of urologic oncology, but with an interest in the concept of prostate needle biopsy and the sequelae. So first of all, Butter, really uh, great to have you on and, and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, Jay. This is really a pleasure, uh, long time coming. We've been trying to get the schedule for a while, so I'm glad we we're able to get together and chat about this important topic.
0: Super, so um, just a quick review for our audience. We're, we're really gonna be talking about prostate biopsy today and, and really talking about the discussion of uh, the transrectal mm-hmm. biopsy, which has really been our standard of care for a number of years, and now the the evolution um, in many practice towards a transperineal approach and the rationale for that. And uh, Dr. Mian is, is uh, really a thought leader in the field. And, and as we're gonna touch on a little bit later, um, has actually studied this, which is very admirable in a trial setting, and and he'll certainly talk to us about that uh, later on in the program. But maybe we'll just start really broadly. Um, but so you know, we, we've been doing transrectal prostate needle biopsies for you know many 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 years, and and now we're seeing this impetus to at least consider a change. And maybe just outline for our listeners, you know, what are some of the issues that you've come across or is the published literature with transrectal biopsy that that we should be cognizant of?
1: Well, you know, the main issue has been of infectious complications. It's not a new issue. Uh, As you know, I mean, you have had interest and focus in in this space for a long time. Uh, This issue has been uh, uh, longstanding. Uh, In fact, just from the time I finished my residency or rather fellowship. So we have been concerned about that. issue of post-biopsy infection. Uh, despite using the best available antibiotics at the time, uh, a number of patients or some patients will experience post-biopsy infection. So that that has uh, uh, led to a number of changes in the field over the years where we have gone from just using a single-dose Cipro or liverquin, fluoro- fluoroquinolone, um, to multi-days, to multiple antibiotics, to you know, enhanced prophylaxis, then targeted prophylaxis, all of that to reduce or control the uh, post-biopsy infection rate. A uh, second uh, concern, of course, the uh, the cancer detection rate. prostate biopsy had been, up until five, six, seven years ago, random sampling. You know, it's hard to believe, but that's, that was the field for two or three decades. Uh, so still there's concern that the... Uh, maybe the transrectal approach has um, lower yield of finding the right type of cancer, the clinically significant cancer, than the transperineal. Uh, So those are the two uh, sort of main concerns with the transrectal biopsy. But I think the focus is primarily on the infectious complications, um, which has remained the topic of, I mean, I debated this topic more than 15 years ago, 17 Mm. years ago, and, and did that again last month, you know. So the topic really is is still hot.
0: So maybe just um, you touched on a few a few sort of um, you know strategies that are out there, and, and maybe you could just tell us a little bit about maybe in your practice, um, <clears throat> if patients are getting a transrectal biopsy, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll ask you a few questions. One is, um, do does your practice at all tailor your antibiotic prophylaxis based on? Uh, like local antibiograms or hospital antibiograms how did, does that play in at all in your choice of antibiotic uh
1: back in 2007 we made a change to our oral antibiotic regimen it used to be one fluoroquinolone before and maybe one after based on what we use superlodivoquin then we had one episode of infection um sepsis where the bugs were sensitive to trim sulfide and TMP, and not to Cipro. So that became our default standard. All transrectal biopsies would receive that. The uh, Meaning one Cipro and one Bactrim before biopsy, and, and one of each later that evening or that night for one day coverage. So that is still the standard. I mean, that is still what we use for patients who are undergoing uh, transrectal biopsy, unless they have some high-risk features such as recent antibiotic use and recent uh to us means six months if someone has been exposed to any antibiotics in the last six months uh, they will uh, receive a a parenteral which is now uh there has been for the last few years ceftriaxone one gram im Um, if they can't receive that then they may receive gentamicin instead uh 160 milligrams um the antibiograms we have been again reviewing for for a long time turns out that those have stabilized and those stabilized more than 10 years ago we really haven't seen the worsening in the colone resistant e coli or klebsiella uh, it was about 26 28% 10 years ago it is still that i looked at that just recently so whatever resistance had developed has developed And has remained steady and maybe steady because we have changed how we treat infection right maybe we have changed uh how we manage uh prophylaxis as well as actual infections and not overuse or abuse antibiotics Uh, so there's been a steady uh persistent uh, rate of resistance to both um, sulfa drugs as well as colon loans for most of the enterobacteria uh, that we see
0: sure so um, one modality that, that we started using at, at our place, probably about five, four or five years ago, was we started uh, trying to incorporate the, uh, the rectal swabs to look for quinolone-resistant gram-negative organisms as part of the, the pre-biopsy workflow. Is that something that's being used at Albany Medical Center right now? Or, or do you just sort of go with the, the algorithm of the, the quinolone and the Bactrim preoperatively and postoperatively uh, in that setting?
1: So at, if we have an uh, affiliate VA hospital right across the street, we're going to attach to it, walk across the street, we can get there. Uh, at the VA Medical Center some years ago, uh, the ID folks along with consultation with urology implemented this uh, approach of pre-biopsy transrectal swab and then uh, used that information to um, to tailor the prophylaxis. So we have sort of built-in comparison um, Unfortunately, as it happens, many, many, many things in urology that we we haven't really formalized the analysis of that, but because it's the same attendings and the same residents that rotate, so we were able to get a pretty good idea of how that turns out, and it didn't turn out to be very, very helpful. Uh, We did still see people um, experiencing infection despite having been given um, culture-directed prophylaxis. Mm. So prophylaxis is just that. It's they, it's not designed ever to be 100%. Of course, our hope and goal is. So we noticed that the post-biopsy infection could still occur in men who had the culture-guided prophylaxis. Um, and there were other issues. There was opportunity cost to it. Uh, patients having to come in maybe for extra visit, having to... Um, Uh, you know, based on your local setup, it added more workflow. Sure. Excessive workflow, it added, uh, it resulted in cancellations when the culture wasn't ready uh, or the patient didn't make his appointment. So there were other issues. So on the net, we never really got enough of signal to start doing the same approach at Albany Medical Center. But within our urology residency, we had two centers, one using that approach and other not, and we did not find it to be beneficial.
0: So you, you mentioned a little while ago that, you know, I think one of the, the principal potential advantages of, of evolving to the transperineal approach is, is this, you know, lower risk of infection. Um, you also talked a little bit about cancer detection rate, and maybe could you just specifically comment a little bit on, you know, the, the anterior zone tumors and, and how that plays into sort of that cancer detection rate um, okay. uh, when you look at transperineal biopsy?
1: It's interesting that you know what's old is new again. I remember as a when I was fellow at MD Anderson, uh, Dr. Richard Babayan and Mike Michael Chen. He was a junior attending, They um, did uh, analyze whole mount specimens, and they digitized each and every focus in the whole mount spe- uh, a specimen, both from uh, prostatectomy. I believe there may have been some you know cystectomy related process. But point being that the location of tumor foci within the prostate, anterior, posterior, posterolateral, and the grade has been studied for a long time. It's not a new construct, that anterior tumor. Of course, we have all used this obligatory slide uh, of the MRI showing anterior tumor and put that on our slideshow and and, uh, see there it is and we can get to that. The question is what percent of tumors are uniquely anterior and not posterior? For years, um, it had been well accepted that in the that the rate is unique tumors. And if you say unique and clinically significant, it may be 2%. Mm. Okay. Maybe it's 3 maybe it's 4 But it's not 20%. Mm-hmm. 20% is the rate of having tumor in both mm-hmm. zones, anterior and posterior. Uh, there was a recent study where half of the patients, it was from Canada. Uh, it was, it's from a group in Toronto. Uh, they reported that half of their patients had tumors anterior and posterior, and 10% were uniquely anterior um, on the biopsy. So that's a, a more recent change, and that will be looked at. But in our experience, uh, um, the anterior, you know, based on remember, you know, we used to do TZ tra- biopsies routinely at some mm-hmm. point in the past, and then we looked at the data, the anterior zone biopsies were yielding very little. It was yep. unnecessary biopsies, those went away. Uh, so. If I have to pick a number, I would say unique anterior tumors, which are clinically significant, it, it probably is not more than 2 or 3%. We are doing a study on that. Uh, we're actually mapping and digitizing uh, tumors on whole man specimens and indexed also the MRI uh, as well and see what is the contemporary distribution of tumor foci uh, compared to what it was 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. that may give us a, a, a sort of signal. But I think tumors, whether they're located anteriorly, you, we should be able to get to anterior tumors with the transrecular approach because we have known for a long time now that the anterior tumors are placed more distally, rather towards apical uh, zone of the prostate. And that was known, again, uh, a long time ago. Uh, and we have been able to guide our biopsy, change the trajectory of the needle, you know, angle the probes in such a way so that we can get the anterior apical sample if we need to.
0: So, you know, one question I would have for you is, you know, we've talked about the different techniques, transrectal and transperineal. Um, maybe give us a few, you know, key of the, the take-home bullet points on, you know, why is transrectal biopsy so popular? Why is it... Uh, um, perhaps, uh, you know, very facile for us to incorporate into, you know, the, the workspace of a urologist. Let's start with that. Why is TTR biopsy so positive, so popular?
1: Well, I think first is familiarity. You know, you sort of, you know what you know, and you train how you train, and it becomes part of your um, uh, sort of DNA, as it were. I mean, virtually everybody who is practicing now uh, is trained on transrectal biopsy are, our anatomical knowledge of the prostate uh, is based on that approach. Um, it is fairly easy. Uh, patient positioning is, you know, left lateral position is easy enough. Um, it's fairly quick procedure. You know, the standard non-target biopsy is seven, eight minutes. Uh, the And the templates, you know, how to take samples and where to take, sam- take samples from, you know, base, mid, apex, paramedian, sagittal, lateral sagittal. So those have been studied for a long time. You know, there have, have, have been hundreds of publications. They have given us the unique yield of each sample. So we can get some sense uh, of sorry, where to take samples from. The, and then more la- you know recently, in the last few years, the the platforms to perform fusion guided biopsies have, were all validated on the transrectal approach. So it's the familiarity with it. Uh, now, of course, if somebody was, you know, born in in the setting of never having done transrectal biopsy and was all transperineal, I assume that you know they will be equally uh, sort of comfortable with that. But urology as as a field, uh, you know, you're looking at tens of thousands of urologists in practice in the U.S. and Europe and and worldwide. Uh, that is, uh, I think, so that's the reason for popularity of that that approach.
0: Um, so, so you've highlighted all the reasons why so many people are familiar and comfortable to transrectal. And so then the logical question and the sequelae to that is, okay, so if we, if you're going, you're embarking on this path of trying to implement transperineal TP biopsies into your practice, what are sort of the, the challenges that we would face as, as urologic surgeons in this domain?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first and foremost is the, you know the comfort zone. You have to, you know, get over that that hurdle. The view is different, right? What you see on the screen uh, is different. The way you sit, the way you position uh, yourself, and especially the patient. You know, turns out that a lot of men are not too keen on being in the Hartman position. You know, it always starts out with a, you know, with a chuckle and a laugh and a joke about, you know, oh, I'm gonna have a baby, uh, but. So that, that, that's one of the, uh, second is that your office, where we practice, you know, depends upon your setup. Some centers will have embedded resources, so it may not make any difference that they can utilize what's there. Uh, other centers, uh, as well as other practices, they may uh, have to uh, invest in uh, additional instruments and equipment, and also to train the staff, not only themselves, they gotta be trained, they have to train their staff. Uh, so those are, you know, some of the hurdles. Um, it does take so. From what we have learned, the time in the room to do biopsy, from the time the patient goes in and the time the patient comes out, is longer, as much as twice as long, compared to transrectal. So, if you're looking at opportunity cost, there is that um, certain time. Let's say a standard transrectal to a standard transperineal is a bit longer for transperineal, because you do want to give a few minutes to the you know to the patient to, uh, to uh, for the anesthetic to to begin to anesthetize, and transrectal uh, lidocaine injection has been helpful, but not so much. Transperineal it is essential. I mean, that's a cornerstone. If you can't get a good block in, it'll uh, be smoother sailing. So it, it does take longer uh, for, for the, your nursing staff. Mm-hmm. It does take longer for the urologist. The room that you use for your procedures is occupied for a longer length of time. So our study would we'll look into that those things as well uh, as we get you know, close uh, to finishing our trial. Um, the question is, you know, is it worth doing all of that? Is it worth making a major paradigm shift uh, and to what end? So we have to look at the reasons for a major shift. It is a major shift, sure. uh, despite the fact that a lot of our colleagues you know, um, in academic centers and also in some private groups are moving towards it. Um, the, the question uh, that I come, you know have is uh, why and to what end, you know?
0: So to tell us a little bit, uh, to, the, to the, your exact point that you made there, um, you know, I think especially those of us in academic medicine, when you see a lot of the, the, the um, if you're on Twitter or you're on uh, any sort of sites, you know, there's certainly this impression of maybe superiority and the superior performance of transperineal versus transrectal and maybe you know you know the data as well as anyone. Um, you know, are they justified, or or are there gaps in the literature? And then you know, obviously, we'll talk about some of the trials after that, which hopefully will answer some of these gaps in knowledge. But okay. are, are the claims of superior performance of TP justified in two thousand
1: and twenty two? Well, I would say it, it depends. If you know, imagine a scenario or, or my practice, for example. If I have a patient who became septic after biopsy, you know, all bets are off. All of a sudden, you, you only have one focus, you know, you live based on your last complication, right? Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that becomes your primary focus. Um, so if you look at the data, we tend to present what we present to make our point. So if I were to um, speak in support of transperineal biopsy, transperineal approach, I may point out the very high infection rates uh, as much as 10, 12, 14%. These are published, you know, th- this is and vice versa. If it was to minimize uh, the uh, the rate of infections post transrectal biopsy, I may pick the lowest one, right? 0.3%. That's published. The a recent study, a recent meeting about 2019, late 2018, 2019, um, they reported 14, 13.9% risk of post transrectal infe- uh, biopsy infection in men who were 65 or older, which is most for patients, or those who have 13 or more samples, which is also most for patients.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when you look at that, it becomes, oh, you know, who would want to support that? But when you look at the literature overall, if you take out these outliers, uh, most commonly quoted rate is 4 to 5%. Now, as you know, complication-wise, let's look at, like, prostatectomy, for example. You know, if you were, or many of us, would get this, you know, sort of data saying that 30% of people are incontinent after prostate surgery. Now, there's some data to, to support that. There's some publications, patient-reported outcomes, which suggest that. But many of us would say, well, that may be true, but that's not what we see. You know, we're mm-hmm. not seeing 30% of patients incontinent after prostatectomy. Well, same applies to prostate biopsy. While there are reports of, you know, four or five, eight, 10% post-biops infection, that is not uniformly so. And there are plenty of places <clears throat> that have less than 1% risk, uh, rate of infection, and they've studied it. So it really depends on uh, sort of what, uh, who's looking at what. So sure. the claim that it should be wholesale uh, conversion, I think that should be the case at a place where they are seeing infection rate of that magnitude. Okay. But if you have been paying attention and you have looked at your data and you're not abusing antibiotics, now you know I don't support using triple IV antibiotic regimens, which are published, you know. Uh and you're still at very low rate, then you may question whether this wholesale shift in your daily practice for you for your staff, for your practice, uh, will be justifiable. So it's, it's a question of coming to a balance. You know, The problem has to be big enough, right? You have to have a big enough problem to create a big enough solution. Right.
0: right. Maybe, yeah, and, I, and I always feel like, and you know, the way that you answer and you get high quality data um, is, is through trials, right? I, I mean, I think that retrospective data uh, population data is always flawed because uh, it's retrospective and it's population, and and therefore um, there are some inherent biases in all of this, which are impossible to entirely tease out. So m- maybe I'll, I'll start with um, tell us a little bit about your trial. Um and I know there's several randomized control trials, but tell us about your trial first and foremost that is sort of querying this TR versus T P debate, and then maybe right. take us through some of the other trials that are there um in, in the spectrum of investigating these two approaches. Sure.
1: The well, you know, when in 2018, 2019, when you know this topic is making me hot again. Like I said, this it's, it's a, not a new question, it's not a new topic, but has become more uh, of a uh, a debate more recently, and people's passion have flared on, on, on something as simple as prostate biopsy. So when we're trying to decide what to do, and we had not seen those high rates of infection since, you know, over a decade. Our rate of infection, when we looked at it in 2017, was with a very broad definition, you know, like somebody received an extra pill, what's called infection, so it was about 2%, uh, in 20, 2, 2.2% in 2017. Well, so maybe we're not looking, you know, maybe we're just uh, not paying attention. So best way to figure this out would be a randomized controlled trial. So basically from day one, when we decided to do transperineal biopsy, we decided well, we're going to do this on uh, on, this, on, a, on a trial. We'll randomize patients uh, with a very short initial uh, sort of pre-trial uh, period with just uh, maybe a dozen biopsies. We said we're going to go ahead and randomize these patients. We had to get... Um, the necessary infrastructure, you know, infrastructure built in. We didn't have the instruments in the office for transperineal, so we had to request um, some support from the medical center, from and uh, apply for some grants to the foundation, etc., to to get the transperineal fusion platform. You know, the, so should we do fusion transrectal and transperineal? non-fusion? No, we wanted to do both biopsies fusion, and we wanted to do both in the office because one of the, the the detractors from the transparent has been that it has to be done with sedation or in the OR, mm-hmm. but data has uh, shown that there are several studies recently that have shown that it is feasible to do this biopsy in the office. It's not a recent data, in fact. I looked at two papers uh, recently that were from 2016, 2015, that the in-office biopsy was feasible back then. Uh, so the, our trial is randomizing patients to show a difference it's a superiority trial. We're trying to show whether the transperineal approach is superior to transrectal. And the the statistical uh, model, the power requires us to have six hundred plus patients who will complete the biopsy procedure and go through a thirty day follow up to show a difference between infectious rate of transrectal at one at five percent and transperineal at one percent. Now we you know. It's reported and, and debated and promoted as having zero risk of infection, but that's turned out to be not the case. We have recent reports, uh, some unpublished, there's some abstracts of post transperial sepsis, not infection. So we said, well, if somebody has fever, it's documented fever, then that should be called infection, even though maybe there's no culture or somebody receives antibiotics by your partner. You know, patient calls in the middle of the night, somebody answers the phone, and the patient receives antibiotics, well, that'd be called an infection, infectious complication. So for transrectal, 5% is a pretty kind of down the middle, uh, widely accepted rate. For transperineal, it was at 1%. So that is our study design. Um, It's, it's, the design is published in the PK journal. Um, The study is about to close. Patients have been all randomized but they haven't completed their uh, final biopsy, follow ups, et cetera. We expect the, I mean, within weeks, I'm hoping. You know, with the pandemic, it, it has slowed down. So we'll have 600 plus patients randomized um, to what do you see? Transrector using a standard biopsy, a uh, standard prophylaxis, same as we used in 2007. No, no new additional antibiotics for transrectal, And the transperineal is antibiotic free. So that's. Again, but that has been the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the one of the advantages, proposed advantages to transparent that you can maybe get by without antibiotics, although European uh, and other studies and recommendations do use antibiotics. They recommend using ANSEP or something
0: similar. Sure. Which what practical? are some of the other trials, uh, in addition, so yours is, is, is sort of on the, the back end of it, close to closing, hopefully, and then you'll have to obviously do the data analysis. What are some of the other trials out there that are looking at this in a, in a randomized setting?
1: Right. So ours uh, was designed to look at infectious complication as a primary endpoint, and we have expanded ours to look at the cancer detection rates of different lo- lo- uh, locations uh, as, a, uh, as extension. There's a trial from uh, in England uh, at Oxford uh, by um, Alistair Lamb and Richard Bryant. They have a um, trial funded by their uh, National uh, Institute of Health. In biopsy-naive men, um, they are going to look at 1,100 patients. Their main um, uh, sort of primary endpoint is cancer detection rates, and the secondary endpoint is the uh, rate of infectious complications, so that should be an important trial. There's a trial in Hong Kong, uh, also, um, that um, is, is, is going to look at cancer detection rates and less so, uh, as far as I know, on the infectious complications. But there is, uh, and lastly, there's trial by Jim Hu and Mo and, and uh, Ed Schaefer. Um, it's a multi-center trial. Uh, it's funded by NIH and also by PCORI. Uh, their primary uh, outcome interest is infectious complications. And that trial has started last year. Uh, so I'm not sure how far they've recruited, but they have multi-center, so it should recruit very fast. And they'll be able to also uh, address this question of randomized uh, patients undergoing both biopsy approaches in the office. Um, and we'll, we'll see what the, what the infection rates are. Um, our trial includes physicians who are not who are not really, as um, uh, should say, Bought into the idea of transparentil, this is you know this part of the learning curve. Whereas other studies have investigators who have already um, demonstrated their proficiency and and expertise in that, that approach, so I wonder if that would have anything to uh, to do with the results. But I think we're excited. Uh, I think this will be these two or three trials are amongst the only trials that will be able to answer these questions. All the other studies that you mentioned have been uh, retrospective or single cohort studies.
0: Yeah. And I, I think as you highlighted, you know, the, the nice thing about the four trials you've sort of outlined is, you know, two of them have infectious complications as a primary endpoint, two have cancer detection rate as a primary endpoint. So I feel like they're they're sort of asking the same question and these mm-hmm. same approaches, but but sort of focusing on two different endpoints, both of which are, are significant and both of which may may impact how we practice. So, you know, I always think about randomized control trials are like the holy grail of trials, right? They're the hardest ones to do. Uh, they're the most meaningful, but they're the hardest ones to do. So maybe a few lessons you learned in in trying to get a randomized control trial off the ground and, and you know, advice to our listeners.
1: All right. Well, first, I think if there are some, um, uh, you know, younger uh, colleagues, faculty members listening, you do want to look at uh, where you're practicing in your in your uh, hospital, in your center, region. Look for embedded resources. See what's there already. Um, you can leverage what's there. Uh, second, uh, you have to get buy-in from your colleagues, uh, which is critical. Uh, we were able to virtually uh, 100% patients in our group, uh, uh, all of our sites, are offered a trial. Everybody's bought in. So that has helped us recruit patients uh, in a timely fashion, despite the pandemic being a, in a way uh, this has is almost close to the schedule uh, that we had that we had anticipated. Um, they, the, you know, the funding uh, is always a perennial challenge, right? Uh, that's why I go back to my first point, which is to look for what's available within your center resources. Maybe they, you already have a data person that's working on something else. So that's a resource, okay? Maybe there are some instruments already available. Maybe so we don't have to buy the stirrups or the table, maybe it's already available, right? So you can get the trial going. We're able to get that extra support from the medical center and also from uh, funding from foundation. Um, the randomization is always a challenge. As you know, You know, telling a patient that you can randomize, it comes across as being experiment. They are you know, not only part of the experiment, you know. Uh, so recruiting patients uh, is, is something uh, that you, we have to have a team. So what we did was we assigned a team, uh, three people that would actually present the trial. And just before the pandemic started, we did uh, shared medical appointments. So patients who are going to have a biopsy were brought in, sat in a room, and I gave, or one of my colleagues gave a PowerPoint. And that made it a lot smoother. So I, I really believe in that, you know, hopefully pandemic is, is done. And for trials of this nature, I think that approach uh, is really critical. Um, meeting patients a consent form is not uh, possibly productive, so talking face-to-face is essential. Mm. Um, what we learned about the procedure is, is that it does, like I mentioned earlier, it does take longer. There's just no way around it. I do see publications or comments being made about, oh, you know, it only takes a few, a few minutes to do it. Uh, the transparanel approach needs a good block you have to be able to do a good, if you can get a good block in, the patient's going to be fine. It does take time. If you're in a rush, uh, the patient uh, will be, you know, wiggling, moving, uh, will have bad experience, you may not be able to get your fusion uh, done properly. So some of these things that, um, you know, we have learned. Now, we didn't have a very, we had a very short pre-trial learning phase, okay? Like I said, if if I were to count, maybe it's a dozen biopsies. So really, from the get-go, we said we're going to start it We'll just go ahead and get it done. And that was uh, one reason we were able to successfully get to the near the end of this trial, you know, by get the buy-in. And if you're going to do it, just go, ahead go full force and just get it done.
0: Yeah, no, that's really uh, outstanding. Good to hear. Um, and and I, I really do applaud you. I, I feel like it's it's easy, um, and I'm as guilty as anybody, it's it's easy to report on retrospective data. It's much harder to uh, really make the effort to investigate something like this prospectively and, and you know, incur, you know, the, the challenges that inevitably occur with resources, time, funding, personnel, uh, pandemic, uh, and whatnot. Uh, but really, I, I really want to thank you, Butter. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the results of your trial are, but but just really enjoyed having the conversation today and your thought process. Well, on- thanks so much, Jay. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, the time and our, our chat. Uh, it was my pleasure. And also thanks to the AUA uh, Office of Education for putting this together. It was really fun.
0: I really want to thank our audience for their time. And uh, for any information, please visit us at auanet.org university. Thank you.
1: Thank you.